turn in your copy of God's word to Ephesians chapter four, as we stand in honor of God's word, which is delivered to us inerrant and infallible and inspired and sufficient for all that we need in life here before we go home. So follow along with me in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We say that every week, not just for a a ritual, but to remind ourselves what the word of God is because we're told what it is not all week long. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the word of truth. We thank you that this word never fails. It never fades. It will not wither. It will never be proven wrong. We will never be fools or be to made, be made ashamed by following it and by believing it. Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us and we thank you more so that you have sent the word incarnate, the second member of you, the Trinity, triune God of the universe, to t- take on flesh, to dwell among us as we just sang the true and better Adam and our first federal representative Adam, we all fell into sin and by the second federal representative we all ascend into glory, all who repent and believe. We thank you for the gloriousness of that great good news, that gospel, that all who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We thank you that we can come together as a body of believers. We thank you that you haven't left us alone. We thank you that you are long-suffering, patient with us as we stumble and fumble our way through the Christian life and seeking to be conformed to the image of your son, the perfect standard. We thank you, Lord, all we can be as a thankful people. And we ask that you would make us that as we look at this reality of you giving us gifts, may we be thankful. Use this time to glorify yourself and edify us. And we ask this humbly in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we continue through the second half of the book of Ephesians chapter four, we know we saw from a couple of weeks ago that it begins the practical section, the application section of the book. And we looked first at verses one through six, which are about the unity of the body of Christ. And you have to establish unity first. Before you can talk about any kind of individuality, you have to establish unity first. And it's particularly important for us in a Western context because we don't think of ourselves uh, as part of a group before we think of ourselves as individuals. That's, that's a really an Eastern concept, the concept like an honor-shame society. You, you, when was the last time you heard anybody say you shame the family name? Like we don't really talk like that anymore. That's just kind of everybody's an island unto themselves. And so it's important for us as the church to counteract that in and amongst ourselves, and it's no accident that the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul to write on unity first, that we are one unit together as the body of Christ. But to each one of us, grace was given. There is an individuality to it that we're gonna look at. This individuality gets explored second. Now that we know who we are as a group, we can now see who we are as individuals. And, and that's a healthy and a, and a right way. You could even say a safe way to think about it in that ordering, because now what we're not going to be given to is a wrongheaded individualism or uh, what we see in our culture, just this rabid personal autonomy. I am who I am and you can't tell me anything else. We're, we're protected. We're hedged from that because we know that we are a part of a greater body. 
You think about it from groups like the military. What do you do first? You all go through the same basic training, become part of the same unit before you specialize and learn separate skill sets. Same is true. We're in the middle of or beginning of football season. Everybody goes through two-a-days, the hot, sweaty, miserable practices, just running and getting beat to death before you figure out who the kickers and the punters and the linemen are. You go through it all together first. And that's what we're doing here, not by our choice, but by the sovereign will of God, the wisdom of God. So we obviously are looking at after reading, we saw what Paul read this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that long chapter on spiritual gifts. And what we read, our scripture reading of our text is about these gifts, these gifts of Christ to the church. Now, we need to make sure we set a little bit of a parameter first, that there is a bit of a distortion and a hyperfixation on spiritual gifts sometimes in evangelicalism. We need to just be aware of that, that there are tests you can take surveys online that you can take, these finders, you know, groups you can be a part of and, and what you can do. I don't know about you, but I always, whenever I take those, I always work it towards, I get the gifts that are the coolest ones and not the charismatic ones. I just kind of work it that way because I know how I want it to come out. So those aren't very valid ways to find your spiritual gifts. And what it can do on the flip side is it can make you entitled no, no, this test says I have these gifts. Therefore, I get to do those things in the church. And that's wrongheaded from the jump as well because character precedes any kind of service in the church, right? We wouldn't say that about elders. Like, well, you have the gift to teach. Therefore, we have to let you then be an elder, whether or not you are the husband of one wife or, or you have a reputation that's above reproach. It doesn't matter. You have the gift. Therefore, you get to do it. That's uh, not the case. We can wrongfully emphasize individuality, but if we all have the same head, which we've been talking about, that he alone makes the decision how much the eyeball is used, right? Your brain makes the decision how much your hand is used or your mouth is used. And so therefore we all, with the giftings that we have, submit to the Father. We submit to Christ as the head of the church. Now we can also, on the, on the other side of things, have a wrongful neglect of spiritual gifts. And that's what we saw in, uh, in the Protestant Reformation coming out from the Roman church, which still exists today, is that nobody has any kind of gifting to serve in the church except for the clergy, except for the priesthood. They get to do everything and everybody else just participates. Not a lot of people know that where church choirs come from is it comes from the Roman Catholic church because you were too gross and too impure to sing, we'll get professionals to do that for you. You're not allowed to do that. And the Reformation comes around in 1517 with Martin Luther and this whole idea of Christian vocation, of Christian calling, of every member a minister, of the priesthood of all believers, all of us jumping in and being used of God. That concept comes back to light. It wasn't gone forever, but it comes back to the fore and we work from that perspective. So what I wanna do is read this passage from 1 Peter 4 to set a big category section of spiritual gifts for us before we get into it. And it'll make sense when we read it. Look at 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. As each one has received a special gift, that's what we just read in Ephesians 4. So each one has received one. Employ it, meaning use it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now you have two categories come up. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So there's the speaking gifts and serving gifts, two major categories. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Two major categories of spiritual gifts, speaking and serving. What we're gonna look at our text this morning is only talking about the speaking gifts, but that doesn't negate the reality and the necessity of the serving gifts. Now you have two major lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Neither of them are the, both of them, they're not the exact same. And you have this gift set here in Ephesians 4, which uh, what we see is that there's not this exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, which is what makes those surveys a little bit precarious because they're gonna limit it down to whatever number they decide there are with 
spiritual gifts. But these lists, are, they're, they're not exhaustive. They have an infinite spirit equipping a massive body of Christ to do the great commission and to faithfully follow the great commandment. So we don't need to overly itemize spiritual gifts like I have the gift of leadership. I have the gift of mercy. I had a, a, a friend and a, and a mentor pastor say it like this. It's, it's almost as if when you're, when you're reborn and you're given spiritual gifts that it's like a palette. Kids, have you ever seen those old cartoons where the, the artist is painting and he has that piece of wood on his hand and it's got the different colors of paint and he uses that to paint with? Well, we think of spiritual gifts like God just hands you a palette and he determines what colors are on it. And everybody has that one palette with those chosen colors to do with, to paint with those. But that's a better way, I think, and it just as I've heard it said and taught about, to think about spiritual gifts versus I, I'm like 80% leadership and like 5% mercy and 6% service. No, no, we don't know. You've just been given a mixture and, it, and it's used in the singular, a gift. Everyone has something and some may have more colors on their palette than others, but everybody has something from the father. So with that established, let's look at the text, verse seven and eight. But to each one of us, you, you gotta read it in there, each one of us, because that's what it says. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captive, led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul's quoting in that second part in verse eight from Psalm 68, verse 18. And he's interpreting it in a way that maybe we wouldn't necessarily interpret Psalm 68, verse 18 when we read it. That's talking about God moving from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion and this big progressive theological movement. And then gifts are given to him as the great king. But then Paul's talking about it as a reflexive of gifts being given to us from Christ having ascended, gifts are given to us. But verse seven says to each one of us. Now, each one, we haven't talked about that kind of individuality at all yet. It's been all unity up until that point. So we made it clear, as we saw talk about earlier, there's no rankings in the body of Christ. We, we said that when we read those passages, like one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all. So there's no rankings or statuses. We're all the same. Nobody's better or worse, more or less of the spirit, more or less of saving grace. None of us deserve to be here. We talked about that, but to each one, grace was given. We have a role to play. Now we have to talk about in Ephesians four verses one through really through 16, that unity is not the same as uniformity. That's an important distinction to make. Unity is not the same as uniformity. What does uniformity look like? Does anybody remember the Beijing Olympics? However many years ago that was? Do you remember that opening ceremonies with the drums? Go back and watch it on YouTube. It's kind of mind-blowing. I, I re-watched it where it's, it's just as far as the eye can see. It's a sea of men who all look exactly the same, who have the exact same drum. It's like a box and then clubs. And they're also using their hands and they're doing the exact same rhythm, wearing the exact same clothes. And when this camera zooms out, it's like they, they almost go away. Like it just becomes a blob of reddish, brownish because of their suits and the wood and all that stuff. And then they zoom in on a person and then it looks like, you know, when you get in the, in the elevator and that's two mirrors on each side and it just keeps kind of going back and forth, back and forth. That's what it looks like when they zoom in. That's uniformity. Everybody's the exact same. Everybody's doing the exact same rhythm and movement, dress the same, looks the same. That's uniformity. But that's not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has unity. Now think about an orchestra. I'm not very musical at all, but I do understand what an orchestra is. That you play and you have piccolos and you have flutes and you have bassoons and then you have uh, the brass instruments and then you have violins and violas and, and cellos and all of these things. Now, and then you have percussion and now they're not all playing the exact same notes exactly sometimes they're not playing the whole time 
Thank goodness for the drums, like the timpani, they're only playing at certain parts and the cymbals crash only at certain parts, but they're all reading from the same sheet music, aren't they? And they're all being directed by the same conductor, aren't they? They're getting the same cues from the same person, but they have unique things to provide to it. And then what does it sound like versus the Beijing Olympic drum intro? There's a beauty to that music and you hear the individuality of the notes and the way that it can sound coming from different instruments versus the, just the rhythmic drumming that sounds exactly, it just sounds like thunder over a while. That's the difference. That's the church because to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Because when we are reborn, we are also gifted. Now we understand the sovereignty of God in our first birth and our rebirth, right? I didn't choose to be born physically from our, my mother and neither did you. And I didn't choose when to be reborn. That's a work of the spirit according to John chapter three. And if God's sovereign over both of those, it would make sense then that he would align at least in some ways and in some cases, physical giftings and talents with spiritual giftings and talents. That when you're born, you have certain things that you can do and certain things that you can't do, right? You're born to be a certain height. You have a certain amount of DNA, a certain IQ, certain hair color, eye color, skin color, a certain level of, of, uh, of all different kinds of talents. You have a dominant hand, left-handed people unite. No, but nobody, okay. Wow, they got one back there, okay. You get gift then that from God, it's a great gift. And then what we have in a defend now today is even gender is decided for you at birth, amen? Because it is. And that, those things enable and then limit your activities, right? Most of us don't play professional sports because nobody in here is taller than six foot six. That's just the way, nothing you can do. No matter what you identify as, you ain't six foot six. It enables and it limits our skills and activities. The same is true for spiritual birth, that when we're reborn, we're given a talent, an ability, a gifting is what the Bible uses, a gifting to use for his glory. The new birth, when we repent and believe in Christ, get new abilities. Often they line up with your natural abilities. Not all the time, but often. And no Christians without it. The children of the heavenly father all take after him in some way. These are all things that God has and we take after him in some way. Now it says there in verse seven that each one of us grace was given. And then we know from the context it's Christ's gift. We know from further on it's spiritual gifts, but it's grace. These gifts are grace. They're not earned. They're, they're not, you can't be, you can't trade them like lunch at elementary school and you can't upgrade them. Well, I like this one, but I really like to move up and get that one. That's not how it works. When I used to coach junior high football at the beginning of every season, every, you know, it's kind of everything's up for grabs because it's junior high and you're just letting them all do stuff and their bodies change so much from like sixth to eighth grade. And then you would come out there and it would never, it would never fail. There'd always be one kid who's just humongous, just a huge kid. And you're just drooling as a coach because you're like, oh man, you're gonna block everybody at once. Thank you for bring, coming to our school. And then he wants to play wide receiver or he wants to kick field goals. And you just wanna tell him, no, come over here, get your stance like this, put your hand on the ground. You're never gonna know anything but that. That's all you're ever gonna know. You're never gonna get the ball. If you touch it, it's illegal, okay? You're never gonna get the ball because you're huge and use that. God's given that to you, use that. So we have to learn to embrace our spiritual giftings as grace. Grace is unearned and uncooperated with, uncoopted. To, to have it, it means this grace, it means that you are in the family of God. You have the family trait in all of the uniqueness. And if God is infinite, then we should expect to see a lot of variety of the giftings of, of his people in his church. And it's all by nothing that you've done. It's all of grace. And grace is necessarily a gift. And who gives these? What does it say? Verse seven, Christ does. Christ gives these gifts. Jesus decides what gifts you have. He knows exactly what his body needs. If he's the head, he knows exactly what his body needs. And he knows exactly his plan for you as a member of that body. And he's earned the right to be able to give those gifts. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's focus in on this last piece of verse seven, according to the measure. 
according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, now this is why I'm more convinced of thinking of spiritual gifts like a palette versus just items. Because what's a measure of, of evangelism? What's a, what's a measure of mercy? What's a measure? Well, there's, there's just a, a breadth to it. And, and Christ decides how much you get of that. Some have greater and some have lesser concentration. Some people have more uh, of each color. Some people have more colors, period. Some people have less colors, but lots of it or less of it. Christ is free to distribute as he sees fit. It makes me think of the, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. We won't read the whole thing, but in Matthew 25, 14 through 20, the parable of the talents, when Jesus is talking about a master who is leaving town and he sets these three servants, these three slaves in charge, and he gives one five talents, think of talents just like as a measure of money. And then he gives one, two, and then he gives one, one. And then when he comes back, the master returns, what does he find? He finds that the guy with five went out, worked, invested, and doubled it to 10. And he finds the one with two went out, worked, invested, doubled it to four, and that the one with only one just buried it. Now we're not focusing on that for now, but when the master is speaking to the one with 10 versus the one with four, does he speak any differently to them? He speaks exactly the same to both of them. One of them has less than half of what the other one has on return, but he gets treated the exact same way. The language is, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. They both get that. And the idea is to be that if the one with one had actually invested it and only had two, which is a fifth of what the other guy had, he would have heard the same thing. Well done, enter into the joy of your master. See, the measure of Christ's gift to you is no comment on your worth as a person. Whatever the spiritual gifts that God has given you, that's not him saying, I love you a little bit less or I will love you a little bit less in, in heaven. Because when the master returns, meaning when, when Christ comes back and you are giving an account for your life, you get treated the exact same way for using what you've been given. And if the disparity, now this is the, this is the thing to focus on. If the disparity, meaning the difference between getting five to start with versus two versus one, if that bothers you, seeing other people with more spiritual gifting, more in your estimation, if that bothers you, then what does that mean? It means only one thing, that you're focused on your glory and not God's glory because if I had that, then I would get more notoriety and that's what I'm after. But you have something and we just put that to work for the kingdom of God. None of the spiritual gifts are for the possessor of that spiritual gift. I mean, that, that completely shoots to ribbons the, 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 uh, the, the concept of a spiritual prayer language that's just for you. None of them are for you, they're for others. First Corinthians 12, seven, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for what? For the common good, they're all for others. You can't be merciful to yourself. You can't teach yourself. You can't uh, lead yourself, shepherd yourself. You do it for others, do it for the good of the church. We'll see in verse 12. So we mentioned what verses eight says that he ascended on high and he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men that Christ has earned the right. And that's what verses nine and 10 are, are after. Christ is the worthy giver. Now this expression, he, Paul gives a parenthetical statement to explain what he, why he quoted Psalm 68. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So who has the right to give gifts? The person who buys them right? It's to give a gift that you didn't pay for is disingenuous, right? Kids at Christmas time or at your siblings' birthday time, do your parents ever give your siblings a gift, your brother or your sister a gift, and then say it was from you? Do they ever do that? How about this? Do your parents ever give you a gift and say it was from the family dog? That happens in my house at Christmas time. The family dog, and then you're like, well, the dog that bit me yesterday, that joker's giving me a gift? or your brother or sister, the one who blew all his money on Legos, he's giving me a gift, that ain't from him. 
but we know who gave it, right? So Christ, who gets to give gifts? It's the person who bought them, the person who, bought, who paid for it. The Lord Jesus bought the right to distribute gifts as he pleases. We don't get to sign up for them and say, yeah, this is what I'd prefer. We aren't given a list of options to choose from. He paid the price. He earned the right to give as he see fits. We settle that in our hearts. We receive that, Lord, whatever it is that you want me to do in your kingdom, that's enough. That's why David can say in the Psalms, to be a doorkeeper in your house is fine with me. If I'm just the guy by the door, because I'm in the house. All I wanna be is in the house. So we submit to God's sovereignty in that because 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as they signed up for in the lottery system. No, just as he desired. That's how it happens, as he desired. And he did exactly what you would do if you knew everything that he knows. And that's all that sovereignty is and submitting to sovereignty of God is. God is doing exactly what I would do if I were him and know everything that he knows. That's what I resign myself to. And there are good gifts because Christ ascended and descended for them. You can't ascend to heaven. If you ascend to heaven, it means you're not from heaven. But we know that Christ is from heaven. So that means he first then descended from heaven, came down from heaven to be among us, to the lower parts of the earth, talking about even going into the grave. That he came down to the lowest of the low, which is being created as us. And his ascension, that's his being accepted in the heavenly realm by the Father as the redeemer of sinners. That's what the ascension means. And it signifies that he has the right to gift his redeemed in the way that he see fit. And we just have to think and pause here for just a, a minute. Paul, in the middle of talking about gifts, mentions Christ and he has to go on a tangent. Anytime that we as believers get near the subject of Jesus Christ, it should cause a detour. It should, it should cause us to, to think and then ponder. I mean, consider Christ's condescension his descending. Think, what could be any lower than that? This sets the tone for understanding gifts in the church. What could be any lower than Christ descending, than the very creator of the universe to be encased in a womb for nine months? What could be lower than that? What could be lower than that? This is how Paul says it elsewhere in Philippians 2, 5 and 8, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning a thing to be held onto. We hold onto every single thing that we have, whether it's a title at work, whether it's our own money, whatever it is, that this is mine and I will not let go of it. I deserve this. I've earned this. And Christ, who is God, doesn't do that with deity and everything that comes with it. Not that he empties himself of deity. He can't not be God, but the equality, being known as that. He emptied himself instead, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. That would be bad enough. But when he humbled himself even further, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, it just gets lower and lower and lower and lower. What, what should this do? I mean, you think about when you read that kind of a text, why would he do this? For who? For you? Who are you? Who am I? That he would do that for me. It should just make us eternally grateful for whatever gift he chooses to give us. I'm counted in. If my gift is sweeping, then praise God, I'll sweep all day in the house of God, whatever it is, because he descended so low. And the result of that condescension, what is the result for him? Well, Philippians 2 goes on to say, for this reason, meaning because he descended so low, God so highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow, not might bow or should bow, but will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess, not might or should, will, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He earned that lordship. He earned that sovereignty, that right. And then what does it then mean for us? 
Christ's condescension and ascension. We've already talked about it. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, with that resurrected, exalted one. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What could be more than that? Whatever gift you give me is fine. <laughs> Whatever gift you give me is exceeding abundantly beyond whatever I can ask or think because my salvation, it's very, the very essence of that was more than I could ever ask or think. So we rejoice and exult in the risen Christ, the one who has ascended. And if he's the worthy giver, then we need to figure out what these gifts are. Paul doesn't give an extensive list here, but he does elsewhere. And we have a whole Bible for a reason. But verses 11 and 12 talk about the variety and the purpose of the gifts. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Christ's gifts start here with Paul's purpose. He starts with leadership in the church. And that makes sense, right? When you're talking about the church, that's what the book of Ephesians is about, establishing the church. Then, then you start with leadership, right? That's how we started with the family. You start with leadership, start with Adam, and then you have Eve, and then you have children. That's how you start. That, that makes sense in a book about the church. You start with the apostles and the prophets. Remember, we've already talked about them in chapters two and three about laying the foundation of the church, that these apostles and prophets, they established the church, the New Testament church. They spoke for God before the canon was closed. Now that's a spiritual gift. When you say, thus saith the Lord, and he actually saith that, that's a spiritual gift, which is why it's no longer in existence because we have full Bible. We have everything that God intends and there's no blank pages at the back. We have everything that God intends for us to have. So these gifts ceased to function in that way. But we still do have evangelists. Now an evangelist is a, a gifted evangelist, the spiritual gift of evangelist, because there is a duty to evangelize, meaning we, we tell everybody about the gospel to come across, but there's also a gift of evangelism. And this is the person that when they share the gospel, for whatever reason, God is just pleased to bring people to Christ through that individual. It just happens more with that kind of person, supernaturally empowered and skilled to do so. These are often the folks that become missionaries, that they can not only learn other language, they can be used of God in that other language to bring people to a concept they have nothing beforehand of. So God uses evangelists, but they're still connected to the church. That's why they're given to the church. You don't just say, I'm an evangelist, therefore I get to start mynameministries.com and you all have to listen to me as an evangelist. No, we're still connected to the church. You don't get to just do that on your own. You're sent out from the church. But then the only gift that we have any further instructions for in the New Testament. So there's no further instructions on how to get more apostles or prophets or really even evangelists in the New Testament but we do have further instructions on what to do with pastor teachers. Now that pastor teacher is unique in the Greek. There's only one definite article. The is the definite article, just in case you're wondering. I'm clouding, I'm covering over your, your bad English classes. Uh, the is the definite article. And so what we had in verse 11 was the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. It doesn't translate that way, but that's how it is in, in the Greek. But pastors and teachers, it doesn't say the pastors and the teachers, it just says the pastors and teachers. So most folks understand that to be that they are connected. It's pastor teacher, that it's one grouping, it's one office. So, sh so the, the word for pastor is poimain, which is also the word shepherd. It's translated as shepherd. And then the word teacher is the Greek word didaskalos, which is exactly what it sounds. It's teaching, it's communicating information. And you have that office linked together. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter, Peter who's an apostle, but also proto-elder in Acts chapter six, what does he tell Peter when he's restoring him in John chapter 21? He tells him to feed the sheep and tend the sheep, to care for them and to teach them. That's, that's the gifting. And all of these four gifted offices here all Paul is talking about are the speaking gifts. 
That's what, there's not all that's in the New Testament. That's all that he talks about in this one section. Now, why begin with leadership? Why does Christ give leaders? Well, we know the church needs leaders just based on the scriptures, Acts 20. Verse 28 following, Paul is talking to the elders of the Ephesian church. And he's talking to them and he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. How did they become overseers? Overseers interchangeable with the word elder in the New Testament. How did they become elders of the church? Who put them there? The Holy Spirit. So if you are in a church and you have elders, who put them there? The Holy Spirit. It's Christ's church empowered by his spirit. And what are they to do? They're to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Why? I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, meaning amongst even elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So we need leaders for that reason. And we need leaders like this. First Peter 5, one through four. Therefore, I exert the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And here's the exhortation, shepherd the flock of God among you, not elsewhere, but among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not your own will, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, the church needs. So when Paul's talking about establishing the church, the church needs men dedicated to the word and prayer who will remain vigilant over the souls that Christ has bought and paid for, who will feed them with eternal truth, who will counsel them in the ways of God, who live lives that can be imitated, and who have been gifted by Christ to do so. First, or Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And this is the reason, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The church needs leaders because they're gonna give an account over souls real souls with real names. And this is why the church can't manufacture these leaders. A lot of times churches function with, whether it's elders and deacons or just elders or pastors or whatever they have for a leadership structure, they just set up a training program that if you go through it, then you get to do it. That's like executives in the corporate world or officers in the military. You've had the training, therefore you get to do it. That's not how it works. If Christ doesn't give them, you don't have them and you can't make them. Christ does this. If these are gifts, which it says that they are from Christ, then what we must do is be on our knees praying, Lord God, please give us faithful pastor teachers. Otherwise, we won't have them because we can't make them. And as a side note, this is why you must be in a church where you actually know the pastors and the elders. Shepherds smell like sheep. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherds smell like sheep. Wolves don't smell like sheep. They hide their scent. Why? Because they're predators. Like dogs, they're always rolling around covering up their scent because they're predators. See, folks are sadly conditioned today that, well, pastor's too busy for me. I, almost every time I have lunch or breakfast or come over to any of y'all's houses, you're always like, whoa, pastor, I know, you, I know, I know you're so busy. And I, under, I appreciate the, the, the kindness and the heartfeltness, but I always feel compelled to say, you don't have to say that because my time is for you. And if I'm not being with you, then what am I doing? Playing golf? Well, I'm not good at golf, so I shouldn't be playing golf. What else is my time for? 
It's for, it's for the church. That's what it has to be for. Too busy, busy doing what? Not doing his job. Let me tell you something. A couple of years ago, this, this young guy, young father, young couple, they came to our church picnic, which by the way, we need to get rescheduled again because I need to reclaim the uh, cornhole tournament crown. Um, that's neither here nor there. But they came because they got invited by somebody from our church and they got to talk to me. Like they walked right up and talked to me. And I was like, hey, how's it going? What's your name? Oh, okay, great, right? And then he was having some problems and he wanted some counsel. And he said, hey, could we ever get together? I was like, sure, how's tomorrow? And he goes, oh, okay, great. So we went to lunch and we met. And, and this, this young man had been waiting and still was at that time. He went to some semi mega church south on 75. There's a dime a dozen of them all over. He'd been waiting for six weeks to not meet with his pastor, to hear back from his pastor. And he had some pretty deep questions he's wrestling with. He was in law enforcement. And you know, a couple of years ago, that was a hard job to have uh, with all the defund nonsense going around. And he's wrestling with, what do I do? And, and I was like, I gave him the best counsel I could, but I was like, brother, I gotta tell you, it it's, should bug you that you got to me in less than 24 hours but you can't get to your own pastor in a month and a half. There's something wrong with that. And he was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I know. And didn't, you know, didn't change his mind on those kinds of things, but I still met with him. And then he wanted to text and call a lot afterwards. And, and, but then he was getting counsel from his small group who are all young married couples who also don't know anything. And they're giving him horrible advice. And I'm doing the best I can to say, brother, you should not do that. I don't think that you should, but that's what happens when the pastor and the elders are either unqualified or inaccessible is you got people shepherding who shouldn't be and who are unqualified to do so. So let me hop off the soapbox and get back to the text here. Verse 12, what is the point of all of this? It's for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service. It might say in your translation, the work of ministry. That's a good translation, the work of ministry, because that's what it is. See, officers in the church, meaning elders and deacons, the pastor teachers, they don't do everything. They train the people in the church to do everything. See, the elders, we stick to the ordinary means of grace. We stick to the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the dispensing of the ordinances, the regulative principle of worship. We do that, and then you go and do everything else. That's what we do. Evangelism and discipleship and worship, we all do that, and elders major in that, but the members then undertake the work of the ministry. That word that's translated as service or ministry in your Bibles is the word diakonia. You can hear the word deacon just kind of jump out. That's what a deacon is, is a servant. Service or ministry. So let me give you some examples of, of what pastor teachers don't do, but that they equip people in the church to do. Let me give you some non-crisis mercy ministry examples. I can't work at the food bank, but you can. That's a good idea to go out there and make that your thing or, or, or homeless ministry or medical supplies getting sent overseas, gathered up and sent to places that need medical. Those are good things. Those are non-crisis mercy ministries, but I can't give myself to that. I got to train people who then go and do those things. Those are good things. Let's think about moral abominations in our country, like abortion, the slaughtering of a human life in the womb. I can't go and be at every abortion mill outside picketing and preaching. I can do that sometimes, but you can go and have a ministry to women who are in crisis. You can go and be a part of those kinds of things. And I can help and the elders can help equip and train. What about religious freedom lawyers? Those are important, you know, moral abominations. We need those, but they can't be me. I can't go down to SMU and get a law degree and do that. And both of these, I train somebody. You go and do those kinds of things. Or semi-crisis mercy ministry outreaches like, like trauma counseling or, or women's shelters. Those are good things. But we, as the elders of the church, can't do those things, but you can go and do those things. We can train you and equip you and pray for you. And then you think about too, just the regular counseling and discipling of each other. I mean, think about that. I mean, even in a church our size, it's not very big, but I can't get to everybody in a week and neither can the other three elders. We can get to a lot of you and that's a grace of God, but you can be discipling each other. You can be speaking the word of truth to each other and counseling each other in ways. And we all do evangelism. We all do discipleship and we all do worship. 
And the end result is supposed to be what? What does it say? To the building up of the body of Christ. See, that's what spiritual gifts are for. They're for the building up of the body of Christ. They're for everybody else. What you have is for everybody. Jesus gave it to you, but then you give it to everybody else. You bless everybody else. You build up the whole body of Christ. See, the greater and the local body of Christ is built up, edified, encouraged, strengthened, sharpened by you using your gift in your way that Christ has given you. So you need to hear this. Whoever you are, if you're born again in Christ, you need to hear this. We need you. We are less if you aren't involved. We are worse off. And, and everybody that I talk to who struggles with this, well, who am I? I don't have this or I don't have that. And you compare everything to preaching. We just need about one guy and he can kind of do that half good. And he's over time right now anyways. So don't use him as your standard. You, whatever you have, you have no idea what that could do to minister to that one person or that child or that family or that couple. We need you. We're worse off without you. Whoever you are, whatever you think that you have or don't have, we will be less edified in Christ if you don't. Christ gave you as a gift to his church. He did. So don't bury yourself in the backyard like the guy who got the one talent. Put it to work. And if you don't know what to do, then come talk to me and we'll figure out what you can do. So here's the conclusion. Let's, let's practical. How do I discover my spiritual gifts pastor's already scuttled all those surveys. Well, it's actually, it's kind of interesting. There's no command in the New Testament on discover your spiritual gift. There's no command that says you got to go figure that thing out, but there's plenty of commands on serving. There's plenty of commands on ministering, on meeting needs, on discipling, on sharing the word, on being together. There's plenty of those kinds of things. It's just faithful Christian living and plenty of calls to sanctification and usefulness. So if you wanna get some idea, don't take the internet test again. Don't find a bigger, longer one. Just do, think about it just in three things. Just serve, serve in the church, jump in something. Even if you think they got enough people doing that, or I don't know if I'm good at that, or I don't really wanna do that. Serve, jump in, do something. And if you don't know what to do, ask Paul. He'll tell you, he's got lots of things to do. Secondly, be known in the church. This is another one of the downfalls of the megachurch. Well, nobody knows your name. And sometimes you like that. Nobody knows my name. I don't have to do anything. I can get my data dump, my, my juice up from the music and then leave. No, you gotta be known. Somebody's gotta know who you are. And when you're not here, we need to know that. We, we missed you. Where were you? And it's not a legalistic checking up on it. It's you weren't at dinner and you're in our family and we wanna know, are you Okay. So serve, be known, and then listen. Listen to the church. Listen to, listen to your elders. When they're just like, man, you just seem to have a bent towards that. Or wow, man, it, whenever you get a hold of that thing, it just goes real well. Or you know what? Actually, can I send somebody to talk to you? I know you've gone through this. So, so listen, other people will tell you in the church, it'll just come up. Oh, wow, you're really hospitable. Could you help us with this thing we're trying to do? So serve, be known, and listen. And then last, what do I do until then? And then what do I do with those gifts? That's just the same thing. Evangelize, disciple, and worship. That's what we do. There's nothing fancier coming down the road. Even if we get a building, Lord willing, there's not something fancier coming down the road. I'm not trying to get a jacuzzi in my office and we're not gonna get blow up things for the kids and smoking later. Nothing else bigger coming. It's just evangelize, disciple and worship. That's what we do day in and day out to the great glory of God, to the sanctification of the saints, to the salvation of the lost until he returns or we die. So if you wanna get better at that, then figure this out. You need to have somebody pour into you, a Paul discipling you or a Paula if you're a lady uh, and then pour into somebody else. Somebody else seems to be struggling. Somebody else seems to be hungry for the word. You know a little bit more than they do. Read it together and just read before they read. And if you don't know, call me. I love talking about it. Pour, be poured into and then pour out into somebody else. Use those gifts in the church. We're not always gonna be the most well-oiled machine at getting people mobilized, but Lord knows we want to be. Lord knows we must be. 
because that's how the church of Christ, the body of Christ is built up until we attain to the unity of faith. We'll pick that up next week. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we're, we are humbled. We couldn't be more undeserving of your son's life, let alone after receiving the gift of eternal life, we get gifts of usefulness amongst your body. And Lord, we, some of us look at ourselves and, and our sinfulness, our repeated sinfulness, and go, what of use could I possibly be? Or our weakness, our fear, or our anxiety, what use could I be? But Lord, we don't even have the right to ask that question because you've said that you have given to each a measure of grace. We're calling into question your reliability to even ask that question. So Father, would we be useful to you? Would you help us? Would you help us as elders as we strive and desire to see uh, every member a minister, every, every uh, member of a priesthood of all the believers? Would we, would we also as a church just defer to each other? Would we not have a, a, a self-righteous demand to get to use our gifts, but just a, a humble eagerness to be useful for your glory? Or may we not be jealous or covetous of other people's giftings that we have arbitrarily determined are worth more? Lord, may we just be so thankful that Christ did not regard equality with you a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a slave, being found in the image of men, becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. May we just revel in that and joyfully expend our energies serving you. Lord, we do pray that our body would be edified and built up. And we also pray that those who are not yet a part of our body would hear the gospel, would be converted, be gifted, join our body, and then be put to use. Lord, we, we long for that. Make us laser focused on the simplicity of the life of the church, that we evangelize, we disciple, and we worship. Help us to do that well and to do that with great joy and exuberance. Help us to be just a robust and, and pleasing symphony orchestra in your ears. We have all different pitches and different tones, but we're playing off the same sheet music. Some of us may be cymbal clangers who come in just once at the end. Some of us may be violins that carry the whole thing. But Lord, may we just be so glad that we're in the band and that we're receiving instructions from the same conductor. And we thank you so much for giving us each other. We thank you so much for the forgiveness that we extend to each other and are extended to. We need it. Or would you continue to Unify us in humility and in faithfulness until you return. And we ask this in your son's name, amen.